I particularly like a series of books and articles that talk about a hundred places you want to visit before you die and those kinds of things. One fellow observed, though, after reading one of those articles about a hundred things to do before you die, that yell for help wasn't one of them. You know, it would seem to me that yelling for help would be something that you do before you die, especially if you're out trying to look at a few places. Uh, God's people, Israel, end up yelling for help in Joshua chapter 6 and Hebrews chapter 11. And this morning, I dare say that there are some here that need to yell to God for help and to cry out to Him for help. You're tired of failing. You're, you're tired of the disappointment. You're tired of embarrassing yourself with the walk that you uh, have. In fact, what you're attempting to do is make yourself feel better and make things right with God by your effort. Now, the problem with that is that you never know when you've done enough. It's kind of like a boss that's got a salesman underneath him that has a quota but won't tell him what the quota is. He's got to sell so much a month, but he never knows when he sold enough. And that's the way it is with trying to make yourself right with God on your own. You, you never know when you've done enough. And that's the problem with all the world religions. Now, the Christian faith doesn't do that. It's not that you don't know when you've done enough. It's that Jesus is enough. See, there's another problem with this as well. No matter how hard you try, you always come up short. And so when you try to make things right between you and God, instead of yelling for help by faith, the truth is, is that you come up short, even with your best efforts. I mean, let's just imagine that today the United States is going to blow up at 9 p.m. And after church, you've got just a few hours to get to a pier at St. Simon's Island. And your design is to jump off that pier all the way to Europe. Well, let's say that the, the explosion is delayed by a few weeks. You, you, you jump off one time and you just jump a few feet off. And you've got a few weeks to improve and to exercise and to learn better how to jump. And you go back and you jump, but you jump only 10 foot further. You see, you might do better than me, and I might jump further than you, but at the end of the day, there's none of us jumping all the way to Europe. None of us are hitting France, you see. That's what happens with self-effort, trying to make ourselves right with God. Listen to me carefully, and please don't miss this. And this is the whole point of the book of Hebrews. And that is, God does not make things right between us and Him by our own effort. God does it by faith. Because we could not do it on our own, He has done it for us, and when we trust Him, then He makes us right with Him. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. And so, life does not have to be one series of failures after a next in our walk with God. Now, there's going to be failure in this life, and you've got to have another way besides human effort of making things right with God. In fact, Michael Katz said, God has never expected anything from you on your own but failure. That's all you're ever going to be able to give God. That's why He brings Christ into your life. And then the expectations that He has of you after that, He expects of the Jesus Christ in you. And that's why you desperately need Jesus today. You see, what God has done is that you need to escape destruction and you're standing on that pier, and you need to get to another place, and so he sends something after you, and he's paid the passage. That's what the cross and the resurrection are. And you know that God is satisfied 
with what Jesus did at the cross because God raised him from the dead. He would never raise someone that disappointed him from the dead. But he raised Jesus. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 30 and 31 have as their background Joshua 2 and Joshua 6. And we'll look at those in just a moment. But here in Hebrews 11, verses 30 and 31, we find that by faith God wrought victories for Israel in Jericho. Read with me verses 30 and 31. By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. By faith the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. You see, Joshua sent some spies in in Joshua chapter 2 to scope out Jericho, and they had to hide in the city, and they landed at the home and the doorstep of a prostitute in Jericho. Well, she had heard and been listening for some time to the great works that God has been doing in Israel. This was not merely, this news was not merely contained in Israel. It covered up the ancient world. And so that warmed and tenderized her heart. And when these witnesses showed up to scope out the land of Jericho, the truth is, is that her heart was ready. And she gave them harbor and she gave them a port. She gave them safety and cover while they spied out the land of Jericho. And she did it if they would save her family when they invaded Jericho. See, she believed that they would defeat this mighty city this important city in the ancient world of Jericho. Well, in Joshua chapter 6, Joshua comes with the army and does precisely what God says. The walls come down, they go into Jericho, and they end up owning the place. And um, uh, they end up uh, bringing about a great victory and eliminating a major obstacle to claiming the land as God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and to Israel. So the victory... The victory that they had came by faith. And this is your victory that will overcome the world in you. And that is faith. Now, how does faith bring victory? Well, there are a couple of things here in the text. One, by faith, God gives victory over evil. Now, look with me in Joshua chapter 6, verses 3 through 5. And you'll find here precisely what happened and what God told Israel to do, and what military strategy to implement against this walled city, this powerful and this mighty city of Jericho. Joshua chapter 6, beginning in verse 3. Watch this. Here's the strategy. You shall march around the city, all you men of war. You shall go around it, around the city once. This you shall do six days. So for six days, they were to get beyond the range of the archers, and they were to march around that city one time a day for six days. Then verse 7. And seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns. So they go to the orchestra, and uh, they uh, march before the ark, which symbolized God's presence. But the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. It shall come to pass... When they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, that all the people shall shout with a great shout, then the wall of the city shall fall down flat, and the people shall go up, every man straight before him. And that's what happened. So isn't this remarkable? This is the military strategy, and it's the most ridiculous thing you've ever heard. We have uh, church members that have combat experience in the United States military. And let me say, they've never fought a battle like this. You don't tear down an enemy city this way. 
You certainly don't get your army from the choir loft and the orchestra. You take to a war more than band instruments. But not Israel. Oh no. What Israel did is that it reached into the choir and it reached into the orchestra and used the music ministry to tear up the place. There you go. That's right. They got some of you tore up today too. Amen. That great? But that's precisely what happened. And because they trusted God and obeyed Him, the city walls fell down flat and they won a great victory. Now there's some critics of the Bible that will say, well, there's no evidence that the walls of Jericho fell down. Well, what they don't tell you is that there's been so much erosion, you can't hardly find anything in Jericho. However, it's clear around the 1400 B.C. era that there was the destruction of Jerusalem, and by 1200 it was occupied. And so, in fact, there are a lot of things we believe happened historically, and we don't have any archaeological evidence for it. And so that's not very impressive, but critics are going to criticize, and that's uh, how they make the money, and that's how they maintain their posts uh, in what they do. But the text is very, very clear that they implemented God's unusual strategy to have victory over evil that they might advance through the Holy Land and take it over. Now, some critics would also say, wait a minute, they killed the Canaanites. How brutal that they did that. One day you're going to be embarrassed that you said that. Let me explain a few things here and respond to this criticism. They're vicious. They're violent. They are below and beneath Western morality. There's no way you can believe or embrace the Bible because of that. Let me make several responses. Number one, our Bible study must consist of more than a few seconds glancing at a social media meme. Ladies and gentlemen, we are dumbing down Americans all over with social media and some education, so-called historical studies, and other factors in American life. And when a people are dumbed down and historically unaware and not capable of interpreting literature and understanding context and nuance and background, they are easy to control. They are. And there is an effort afoot, and has been for most of the 20th century, to do that in the United States. And intelligent people will never submit to tyrants. And so, these critical people post social media memes attacking the Bible. And there's some silly Christians who buy into this. There's some silly non-Christians that don't do any more thinking than what they can accumulate from a sentence of a social media meme. Listen, if you understood the biblical background of this, you wouldn't be criticizing the Israelites for taking out the Canaanites at all. It wouldn't be the Israelites you'd be criticizing. It would certainly be the Canaanites, and you would be wiping your brow saying, thank God we don't have to deal with that crowd anymore. And I'll explain a little bit more about that in just a moment. So our Bible study has got to consist of more than a few seconds glancing at a social media meme. Before you criticize the Bible, would you too, please do more than look for inspiration, but engage in some perspiration in trying to understand the Word of God. Second thing, as judge, God commanded Israel to execute the Canaanites at Jericho. Now God knows everything, God is everywhere, and God has all power. And so God didn't need to engage in investigation. He was an eyewitness to the crimes of the Canaanites in Jericho. Uh, God has perfect knowledge. And so when it came to the Canaanites, God 
examined them, God tried them, and God convicted them, and merely enlisted Israel as the executioner. That was the system. That is divine due process. There's a third thing. Murder was valued in Canaanite culture, especially murder of their children. Deuteronomy chapter 9, verses 4 and 5, and chapter 12, verse 31, make it very, very clear. And so, for their widespread murder of their children in other cultures in the land, they, were, they received the penalty of the death penalty. That's what you have here. And so, if you agree with the death penalty as a form of punishment, you should not have difficulty with it being exercised here. Then, fourth, they had centuries to get right with God, according to Genesis 15, 16. It's not like God rushed to their death. Oh, no, not that at all. God waited centuries and patiently witnessed to them, at least through creation and conscience, to get them to seek Him, that they might find Him. So God was not quick to this. He did not rush to judgment, although if He had, He'd be perfectly justified, because He has perfect knowledge. He was present at all those crimes. He saw everything that happened. He has the authority to execute a culture. And then, they knew for at least four decades of God's work in Israel. Uh, and, And what you have here in the text is that Rahab indicates that she had heard about the Exodus. She'd heard about the miracle of the Red Sea. She had heard about the defeat of Og and uh, other kings in Sihon uh, in the ancient world. And so she knew that God's hand was on Israel. And that leads me to another thing. A prostitute trusted God. Why didn't the rest of them? Why not the rest of them? She was spared by simple faith. Certainly not her virtue. She had none. But by faith, she got right with God. So listen to me. Passages like this do not put Israel's morality under investigation. It puts our morality under investigation. We are being examined in this passage, not Israel. So, listen, let's get over our naive compassion for murderers like the Canaanites. Let's have sympathy for their victims. My sister, Catherine, is involved in a street ministry in Houston to young girls who are victims of human trafficking. Just a couple of weeks ago, she told me she came upon and witnessed to and sought to minister to the youngest victim she has met yet, a little girl who's six years old. And she admitted to me, she said, I've had to pull out, I've had to back off because emotionally it tears me up, and I want to hurt the predators that purchase these girls and force them into prostitution and slavery. Now let me ask you something. Who receives your sympathy and compassion there? Listen to me, if you're going to be consistent, if you have compassion for these murderous Canaanites, you need to have compassion for the predators in Houston. But if you've got compassion for six-year-old little girls and those trying to work with them, you need to put your compassions in the right place, and that is with Israel. So let's stop this naive sympathy and this misguided compassion for those who murder. Now, if they repent and get right with God, praise the Lord for that. But most of them and many of them do not. Let's put our compassions and the sympathies in the right place, and that happens to be with the victims, and be done with this naive compassion and this misplaced sympathy. God won't have any of it. You see, for this reason... It is not Israel that is under investigation here. It's us. It's us. 
So if you'll do more Bible study than read a sentence on a social media meme, you'll come to understand these things. And if you're not going to immerse yourself in the Word of God, please don't criticize the Bible until you do. Now, let me summarize this real quickly here. Doubt your doubts before you doubt the Word of God. That's what we should do. Now, to overcome evil then, God may direct you much like He directed Joshua in Israel. God directed Joshua in Israel to an out-of-the-box military strategy where the soldiers came out of the choir loft and the orchestra and where the weapons came out of the music suite. He directed them out of the box, and oftentimes God directs us out of the box to overcome our evil. See, we're being examined here in this passage. It may mean to overcome evil, you're going to have to do something out of the box that you haven't considered yet. It may mean you need to get some counseling. It may mean you need to obsess over forgiving others. It may mean that you gather around yourself seven people who will fast and pray with you each week. It may mean that you've got to change your mind. It may mean that you stop putting yourself in the position of the victim and put yourself in the position of the victimizer or the other way around. It may mean this morning you begin a new life in Jesus by saying no to the old life and breaking from that, which the Bible calls repentance, and trusting the death and resurrection of Christ and making it public at the end of this service and going public for Jesus Christ by coming today and following Him in baptism. It may mean a lot of things, but do not be surprised that when you've got this Herculean struggle with evil, that God directs you to do something outside the box, like Joshua and Israel at Jericho. So by faith, God gives victory over evil. But there's a second thing. By faith, God gives victory over failure. And if there is anyone who's the epitome of failure in the Bible, it's the bad girl, Rahab. She and many others have become become known as that very thing. And her story's in Joshua 2 and in Joshua chapter 6, but she's summarized in verse number 31. Look what it says there. By faith, the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe. And when she had received the spies, uh, when she had received the spies with peace, with welcome. You know, it's just like God to let a prostitute in on this kind of work on the most miraculous and marvelous work, and to do it by faith. And Rahab had faith. Now let me remind you, when the spies went into Jericho to spy it out and to assess it, what was going to be needed there, they had to have some cover, and Rahab gave it to them. And she redirected those looking for the spies, and as a result, Israel saved her. Now there's some wonderful things that took place in her life, but I don't want to get ahead of myself. Uh, She had faith and she trusted God, and that's how she got out of the fix the rest of Jericho was in. And that's the way you get out of the fix the rest of the world is in, by the same faith that Rahab had. And there are several ways to describe it. It was an informed faith. She was aware of the Exodus. She was aware of the Red Sea that Israel came through and their defeat of mighty kings. Listen, you may not know everything, but if you know something, God expects you to act upon it. Just act upon what you already know and trust God to come through. God expects you to act on everything you already know. And then when you do, 
you get more. So it's an informed faith. It's also an independent faith. Rahab didn't have to consult with the man, her father, or anyone else. The oldest son, who in this circumstance was probably the head of the household, she didn't have to consult with any male in her life before she changed her faith and began to trust the God of Israel and made arrangements for her larger family. So listen to me, friend. Don't ever, don't ever buy into the notion that the Bible is sexist or anti-woman. Everywhere the Word of God has gone and entered into a new culture, it is usually and almost always found women who were denigrated and put down and treated like property. And every time it's entered a culture, it has elevated them up. And those women who criticize the Bible as sexist and anti-woman are doing so in a culture where they enjoy the privileges that the Bible has given them by elevating women in that culture. Is that not a delicious irony? Reminds me of the communists. When they were denouncing that God exists, they were doing so with the language and alphabet created by Christian missionaries in A.D. 800. And that's exactly what's happening here. And so never buy into the notion that the Bible is sexist or anti-women. That's two steps below stupid. It'd have to improve to get up to stupid. You know what I'm saying? And I don't mean to offend you. If that offends you, you can come up after the service and apologize to me and I'll forgive you. <laughs> it's also an insulating faith. Her faith insulated her from the judgment of God. And if you'll come to Christ, God will insulate you as well. And Joshua 6.21, it's very clear. She and her family were saved. Hey, do you know what kind of impact you could have on your family? if you were to come to Christ and follow Jesus by faith. Can you imagine what you would do? What a great impact. If a prostitute could change the fortunes of her family simply by faith in Jesus, can you imagine what you can do? That's precisely what happened here. It's an influential faith as um, well, uh, and I just spoke about that she came to Christ. And then it's an incredible faith. In Matthew chapter 1, there are some sweet and tender names that are mentioned there in the family tree of Jesus Christ. You see, Rahab came to be part of Israel. And there was a man, after she got herself right with God and got cleaned up, there was a man in Israel that took notice of her. And Matthew chapter 1 talks about that. His name was Salmon. And Salmon married Rahab. And she bore and brought into the world Boaz. And you remember who Boaz married? Boaz married Ruth. And Ruth gave birth to a man by the name of Obed. Obed got married and had a son by the name of Jesse. And Jesse got married and had a son by the name of David. Well, generations pass. And eventually somebody marries someone else and bears Mary and bears Joseph. And ladies and gentlemen, Mary bears Jesus. You know something? That's just like God. To not only include a prostitute, a harlot, in a great work that God does in Israel, but a great work that God does in bringing Jesus into the world. Rahab is in the family tree of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what God does when people trust His grace. So listen, Rahab is a real rebuke here. She's an encouragement, but a rebuke. If you're humble, she encourages you to come to Christ. But if you're resisting Him, she's something of a rebuke. Some people would say, well, wait a minute, I, I don't know enough. Well, Rahab's a pagan harlot. 
but she acted on what she already knew. She trusted God and she was saved and she rescued her family as well. Hey, just act upon what you do. No, don't worry about what you don't know. You, you know that you need Christ. You know that you've got guilt before God. You know only the blood of Jesus can remove your guilt. You know He's true because He's risen from the dead. You know today you can't do it on your own. You know now that only trusting Him will make you right with God. Just act on that and it'll be all right with God. God will make it all right. And then she's a rebuke, not only to those who say, I I don't know enough, but to those who say, I'm too bad. No, you're not. If you're too bad, then Jesus failed in his mission. But he didn't because he's risen from the dead. If you could not be forgiven by the death and the blood of Jesus Christ, then God would have never raised him from the dead. He is risen from the dead, trusting. And then she's a rebuke, not only to those who say, I don't know enough and I'm too bad, but she is also a rebuke to those who say, well, what about my family? Listen, she got right with God and her family came with her. You never know what God is going to do through you in your family when you trust Christ by faith. So listen, there is never a good time and there is never a good reason to say no to Jesus Christ. And Irish Erie Blue, who happens to be a volunteer Southern Baptist missionary in Texas, has got a similar story. She came up in Houston. She was very, very tall and awkward about six foot two, and it embarrassed her. And the way she was treated when she was young broke her heart and led her into all sorts of vice and ugliness. But Jesus Christ did something in her life. And I want you to watch this right now, if you will. Here's her testimony. She takes about six minutes to tell it, and I want you to hear it. There are stories of a man who walked on water. You see, I started liking boys in the incubator. I loved them. I thought, there is a God, and he made boys. I liked them. You know, I'd try to flirt with them and look sexy, and I'd lean up against the locker, and he'd cave in. But my dream was that I wanted some little boy to carry my books or to treat me like I was valuable or open the door. I just wanted somebody to think I was special. And so the little boy I had a crush on, that's what he was afraid of, that I was going to crush him, he come up to me, and he says, listen, I need to ask you something. He was real nervous, so I thought he was going to ask me to go steady or something but he asked me if I'd carry him piggyback my little computer started saying look you're big and ugly and if you don't do something you're not going to get his attention because you see who gets to hold hands in school it's some little bitty cute girls you're never going to get it and I was hurting inside I wanted to cry but I didn't want nobody to see me cry so I didn't let nobody know but I ran home to my mother and I said why am I so big is there a pill I can take or an operation or something I am a freak my mother got reached deepest she could into her heart and gave me the best answer she could come up with honey God made you that way you're kidding And you want me to worship him? When I was 13 years old, I was convinced if I could just get away from home, that's the first time I ran away. And I got out there, and you know what I found? You don't have to run real far to be a long way from home when you're looking for the wrong kind of stuff. And I didn't have to leave very far from my parents' house to be in a mess. That there was bars that catered to young kids, and they still do. There's those people always going to be there. And uh, so the whole thing was that I went out there and 
within days, got on drugs and, and just a lot of garbage at 13. I should have been playing with dolls, but the man that I met that I thought was finally giving me some attention, I'd never had attention from guys. You know, it was always just the fight or arm wrestle. It's the only way I ever got to hold hands in school with boys. <laughs> Don't panic. And uh, it was just that I would arm wrestle them or something. And so I was excited that I was getting attention. I was uh, the excitement of just being out there, things happening. It was, and people smiled. You know, you go in a church and look pitiful. I didn't get a lot of attention. But when I went in a bar looking pitiful, somebody talked to me and they would give me attention. And I thought, man, this is great. I didn't realize they, it's like a hypnotizing me, trying to get me in. Then they're going to use me up and throw me away. But I didn't know that at the time. I was just getting some attention and excitement I'd never had before. When I was 17 years old, I got arrested. When I got arrested, I was arrested for robbery. And at that time, when I got put in jail, I, when I went to jail, I thought, as young as I am, they'll just call my parents like every other time. Every time I'd ever been arrested, they'd call my parents, and my daddy would lecture me, and my mother would cry, and I'd make big promises. And when I was standing in front of that judge, he said that he sentenced me to eight years in prison. I remember getting that yucky feeling in my throat. I thought, whoa. And then all of a sudden, it hit me. Big deal. If I do the whole thing, I'll still be younger than you looking at that judge. And I just had such an ugly attitude. And you know what I found out about being locked up? It's like squeezing a water balloon. It doesn't really change anything. It just keeps us from hurting other people or doing stuff. It gets us in a place. But sin doesn't stop by just holding on to it. It pops out somewhere. And I got in that prison and there were things going on in there that I wouldn't even try to describe. But I walked in with an attitude saying, now, look, there's certain things I won't do. I might do that. See, I'd never changed. From the very beginning, I always thought I'd draw a line and say, I'll do this, but I'll never do that. And I always would realize I could step over that line. And once I stepped over it, it didn't seem so bad. And I could look back and go, that is nothing. But I'd always find another line to draw, no matter where I was. At my very worst, at the very pits that I ended up getting to, I could still compare myself to other people. And at one point, my biggest comparison was it said, well, at least I'm not a hypocrite. I just do it. I don't do like a lot of them old church people. They go and claim something and then go and live like other people do out in the world. And so even at my worst, I'd always find somebody to compare myself to. And I'd draw lines, and I always thought that I had power to stop and not go any further. Down there in that cell where nobody could see me, my dream never changed. I still wanted to be a lady. My dream was I wanted to feel valuable to somebody. I got back on drugs within hours of my release. Before long, I was back doing worse than before, living in two lifestyles, wickeder than ever, because I thought that I was going to just be a confused person the rest of my life, and there wasn't no way out. I didn't know what was going on, but I knew I just wanted to be valuable to somebody, and all you can do is just play the game everybody plays, and I didn't think there was hope. A young man got up out of an old church one day. He said, you know what? God wants us to be witnesses. I want to be a witness. I want God to use me. And he decided I was going to be his first target. He'd say, I just called to tell you Jesus loved you, and I'd hang up on him. He'd wait till almost closing time, call and say, hey, I just called to remind you. I'm praying for you, and Jesus loves you. So here we are in front of the bar, and he says, I can't see you no more because I made a commitment. I wasn't going to hang around with tramps. When he called me a tramp, I wanted to cut his throat. I thought all week you've been telling me I was precious to God and that I was valuable. And now in one word, what do you call me? Garbage. What do you do with garbage? You put it on the ground, on the corner, and garbage men take it away. 
And he said, you don't even understand. Jesus could make you a lady. And he took my hand and led me in that prayer. And that night I closed three topless nightclubs. I never went back where I was shacked up. To this day, 22 years, I don't know where my furniture, my clothes, my jewelry went. My life was different. Out in front of an old bar, I knelt down a tramp, a loser, a zero. But I stood up a lady. There are <laughs> stories of a man Isn't that something? Did you hear that last line? That night, she knelt down a tramp before Jesus, and he raised her up, a lady. That's what Jesus does by faith. And you can't do enough religion. You can't do enough good works. You can't do enough self-improvement to get in on that. So God has made it available to you by faith. Listen, let me ask you something. What if you quit making excuses? What would you do? Let's say right now, in this time, you refuse to make a single excuse. What will those people think of me? Let's say you rush that out of your mind. I'll tell you what they'll think. That they'll be excited. They'll applaud, at least in their heart. When they find out about your decision, they'll applaud with the hand. So set that aside. Or I don't know these people here. Well, set that aside. God knows you. And we've seen thousands since 1959 come down these aisles, give their heart and life to Christ. Well, what if you put aside all excuses today and came by faith to the crucified and risen Savior? What would you do? Let's pray now that you will do that very thing. You can kneel down a sinner and stand up a child of God. Let's pray together.